Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. How satisfied are you in your job? You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your job satisfaction? 10 being the highest, 0 being the lowest. Is it an 8? Is it a 7? Is it a 3? You know, in a recent study done by Curtin University on job satisfaction in Australia, they found that people within the agricultural, forestry, fishing and arts and recreational services have the highest percentage of job satisfaction. 38% said that they were highly satisfied with their jobs. The next um, industry with the highest job satisfaction were those in the other services, which includes a range of personal services, religious, civic, and interest group services. Probably not surprising to you, what do you think were the least satisfied workers in Australia? Who do you think are the least satisfied workers? They're in the hospitality industry. Many part-time workers in hotels, takeaway food shops, bars, and cafes were interviewed, and 26% of them said that they were severely dissatisfied with their work. Now, when I read this, I realized that most Australians, therefore, are not very satisfied in their work. Most don't find fulfillment in their job. You know, you will, you will spend roughly one-third of your life at work. Your work will consume eight to ten hours a day, every day, and so your job will either put lots of joy into your life or it'll either be a misery in your life. So how do you have a fulfilling work life? How do you find job satisfaction? Well, this morning we are concluding our series, Lord Help My Family, as we've looked at how the gospel changes our marriages and how the gospel changes our parenting. And today we're going to look at how the gospel affects the way that we work. So please open up your Bibles if you haven't yet to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 5 to 9 this morning. And in this passage, Paul addresses slaves and masters. Now, this is quite normal because Paul has been addressing the different members of the Greco-Roman household. He's addressed wives and husbands. He's addressed children and parents. And now he's going to address slaves and masters. But as soon as we hear the word slave, I think we have a gut reaction, don't we? We're a little bit appalled. I mean, why doesn't Paul, at this point, come down hard on slavery? Why doesn't he say that it's wrong, considering everything we know about God and everything we know about human dignity? Well, there are a number of things that we've got to note. First, the slavery that was in the first century is not like the slavery that we know of that was found in the colonial period in Europe. In the first century, it wasn't like there was a particular racial group who were enslaved, like it was in Europe, with the Europeans enslaving the Africans. Further, it was not like slavery was a permanent condition. A people, they could work their way out of slavery. And also, slavery was also a means by which poor people could survive. You see, there was no social networks in the first century. So if you were in poverty, if you were poor, at least you could sell yourself into slavery And this would be a way that you could survive. Now, it's interesting. 
One-third, get that, one-third of the Greco-Roman Empire was slaves. And many slaves were well-educated and they held prominent positions in Greco-Roman families. But make no mistake, it was still not very nice being a slave in the first century. You had very limited rights and you were at the disposal, the beck and call of your master. And I think that the overall teaching of the Bible is that God hates slavery. God hates one person owning another person. You know, the God of the Bible is the one who in the Old Testament rescued Israel out of slavery. In the New Testament, Jesus rescues us from slavery to sin and death. And Paul would say that in the church, there is now neither slave nor free, but all are equal in Christ. And it was passages like this one that led people like John Newton and people like William Wilberforce to take a stand. It it led them to take a stand against slavery, which eventually led to its abolition in Europe. But still, why doesn't Paul come down hard on slavery? Why doesn't he say this is wrong? Well, you see, Paul knows something. Paul knows that primarily the work of the gospel is firstly to transform individuals rather than transform institutions. And if you transform individuals, those individuals will transform society and then the institutions of society will be transformed. And Paul, as a good pastor, knows that he has to pastor people where they are in the social context they find themselves. And as I said, one third of the empire were slaves. And so he was preparing them as to how they would live out the gospel in that particular context. Now, obviously, within Adelaide, I don't think there is slavery in Adelaide. I may be wrong. But so how does this passage actually apply to us today? Well, I think it can apply to our working relationships But we have to be very careful in in applying this passage because there isn't like a one-for-one correlation. It's not like a slave is a worker and a boss is a master. We are fortunate to live at a time where as workers we have rights. But I think that we still can apply this passage and this passage can teach us how we can have a satisfying work life despite a difficult working situation. And I know that in a group this size, there are many of you that tomorrow morning, you will dread getting up in the morning because you're about to enter a difficult work environment. And I want you to hear from the Lord this morning as we study this passage. And I'm going to pray right now that he is going to give you a word this morning that will give you joy and hope as you head out tomorrow. So let me pray for you. Dear Father, I pray for every person here today, and I thank you that your word doesn't ignore the reality of our social situations. Rather, your word speaks to every part of life, and I pray especially for those people who are here today who really struggle in their work situation, that after studying your word today, they would have heard your voice speak to them, Father, and you would give them a new way to approach their work that will ultimately lead to joy and fulfillment in their life. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So how can you find satisfaction in your job? Well, my first response would be probably to give you a piece of human wisdom. If you want to find joy and satisfaction in your work, 
then find a job that lines up with the gifts and the passions that God has given you. You see, work is actually a gift from God. Uh, Right at the very beginning, when God created Adam, he put him in the garden, and it says he put him there to do what? To work it and to keep it. So work didn't come about as a result of sin. Work was already there before human beings sinned. In fact, in Genesis 1, after God created man and woman and he blessed them, he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue the earth. In other words, he said, I want you to go forth. I want you to have families. I want you to create societies and cultures, which includes work. And so work is like an intrinsic part of our humanness. Just like when God finished creating the heavens and the earth, and it says he looked back, and what does it say? He looked at all that he had created, and he said, behold, it is very good. In other words, he he found satisfaction and fulfillment in what he had built with the work of his hands. I don't know about for you, but for me, after a good day's work, there are times when I just think, man. That was a good day of work and my heart is filled with fulfillment at what has been accomplished. And the reason that happens is because we are created in the image of God. And so work is an intrinsic part of our humanness. And we are told in Psalm 139 that God knits you together. It's such a powerful, powerful personal text. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He gave you certain talents and certain passions and certain abilities. And so I counsel people, if you want to find satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, find a job that lines up with the person that God has created you to be. And typically I draw a diagram like this. Look up here. You have your passions, your gifts, and your abilities. And then you have the requirements of your job. And with every job, every job will not totally line up with your passions, your gifts, and your abilities. These things will not totally line up. On the one hand, there'll be things that you'll be asked to do that are not in your area of strength. But because it's your job, you just have to lump it and do it. On the other end, there'll be things that you're passionate about that is not required by your job. And so you'll have to find another place to actually do those things. But if your job lines up enough, if what is required of the job and your passions and your gifts line up enough, then you will find that that is an exciting job to go to. You'll find every morning when you get up, you just want to go to work. You want to be there. You know, my wife, Tegan, she has a job like this. She's a school nurse here at Cedar College. And she she has this passion to care for people. She has a passion for children. I mean, she had five of them. (laughs) And every day she loves going to work. She loves getting up and going to work, even on the tough days. This last week, she had a particularly tough day, and she came and she debriefed with me all the things that were tough about her day, and at the end of it, I said, but you still love it, don't you, Teague? And she said, I do. I do, because she's doing what she's passionate about and what she's gifted for. Now, on the other hand, if you have a job like this, where your passions, gifts, and abilities and the requirements of your job are completely out of whack, then you will be asked to do things in your job that is not your strengths nor your passions, and that will lead to stress. And on the other hand, what um, there'll be things that in your passions that you can't do in your job, and this will lead to frustration. 
But I have to say to you all this, this word here is that all of us have had jobs in our lives like this one, haven't we? we? In fact, when you start into the world of work, you typically start into jobs like this one. Uh, jobs that are not your ideal job. And this is good for us because it teaches us the value of hard work and it refines our character. I, I, I remember my first job. Um, it was working for my father on the farm. From the age of about 10, Dad said, come on, come on, Timmy. He used to call me Timmy. You can't, but he did. Um, <laughs> he used to say, Timmy, let's go muster some cattle. And once we would go out mustering cattle, it would take all day. We would then get them into the yards, and then we then had to brand them and do other things to them. Now, if you know me, you know that I don't have a practical bone in my body, all right? Poor Tegan, if the tap leaks or something goes wrong in our house, I have to call up my good friend Damien. Say, Damien, quick, come. <laughs> because as I said, I don't have a practical bone in my body. I'm not good at those type of things. My dad used to laugh at me because I would much rather be under the tree composing music with my guitar than out driving the truck or shooting something, you know? But I have to say that I am so grateful to my dad, so grateful that he took me out working and he took, taught me the dignity behind hard work. And sometimes we had to work really hard. We would plow these fields and then uh, we'd, in order to sow legume and seed and in order to make um, a nice field for the cows to eat, We'd have to pick up all the sticks that were left over, and that was back-breaking work, and you got splinters in your hands. But I'm so grateful for my dad doing that because it taught me about the dignity of work. There were days when we would finish a, a field and have, have cultivated the field, and as we looked at that field, there was this sense of accomplishment, that we had done something worthwhile, done something valuable. It's important to feel that as a young person. But I'm also grateful that as I pursued a career, a vocation that aligns with my gifts and my talents, and as I've upskilled myself in education, and as God has sovereignly opened the door, I am now in a job that fits me like a glove, where my gifts and my talents and my abilities and also the requirements of my job fit together. And so there's not really a day when I don't bound out of bed, ready to go to work. Now, some of you are retired here this morning, and you might be thinking, oh, great, this message is about work. It doesn't apply to me. But it was interesting. The other day, Steve Rose came into my office, and with a laugh, he said to me, so much for retirement, I am now more busy than ever. <laughs> you see, you mightn't be paid anymore to do your work, to do work, and you mightn't have a formal job anymore, but work is intrinsic to us as human beings. And as a retiree, you still are probably volunteering your time and you want to give your time to things that fit with your gifts and your passions and your abilities. So I think, how do you find satisfaction in your work? Well, humanly speaking, find a job that meets up with the gifts and the passions and the talents that God has given you. But also I think that a lot of job satisfaction has to do with the people you work with. So find a healthy work environment. You know, there are working environments when the culture of the place is toxic, where it's competitive and it's filled with gossip and slander, where you have an unreasonable boss who belittles you all the time. 
And it might be a battle zone every single day. You know, I found that people who really enjoy their work enjoy their work because they're part of a team where they're appreciated and where they appreciate others. Now, obviously, this side of Genesis chapter 3, there is going to be frustration in the workplace, right? There is going to be misunderstandings, there is going to be miscommunication, and there's going to be conflict. And I like to say when people come and work at City Reach, they come with rose-colored glasses, thinking that working at the church will be like working at heaven on earth. And I like to say to them, no, 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 it's not like that. The fall runs through this place just as it runs through every other workplace in Adelaide. You will find that there will be times where you will be frustrated, you'll be angry with me, I might get angry with you, and that's just part of life in a fallen world. But I think that part of having a satisfying job is being in a work environment where there is this healthy culture, where you have good relationships with your colleagues. You know, one of my favorite sitcoms, I don't know what you'll think of me after I say this, but one of my favorite sitcoms is the American version of The Office. <laughs> Do you know that show? All right. Even though some parts of it are a bit off and Michael makes you cringe at times, he is the type of boss who loves his employees and this comes out over the show. I remember in this one particular episode, Pam, who's the receptionist, she's also an artist, she draws this picture of The Office and it's going to be shown at this art exhibition and she invites all of her work colleagues and no one shows up. And the art exhibition is almost over and then in comes Michael. And he's like, he looks at this pretty average picture and he's like, this is the best thing in the world. And he purchases this picture and he puts it up in their workplace, making much of her. You know, we all want to be in work situations that are healthy, where we're appreciated, where we're treated well. And I think that part of having a satisfying, fulfilling work life is being in a healthy work situation. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What happens if you were a slave in the first century? What happens if you were just told what you had to do? What happens if you had a horrendous master who just treated you poorly? And what happens today if you have a job that doesn't line up with your passions and gifts and you can't really transition out of it? People are depending on you and you've made financial commitments. How do you have a fulfilling job then? How do you find satisfaction in your work then? Well, this is where our passage this morning is very instructive. Because even though you might not be able to change the what, you can change the why. And what I mean is this, even though you might be able to change what you do, you can change why you do it, your reason for doing it. And this is where the gospel changes everything. Look down in verse 5 in your Bibles. We read this. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. The terms fear and trembling are prepositions of attendant circumstances. What that means is Paul is saying, I want you to obey and I want you to obey with, alongside of your obedience, should come fear and trembling. Now the word fear is used by Paul in the previous chapter to describe how we are to submit to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. So Paul is saying to slaves, you need to obey your masters with reverence, with respect, 
And then he says, with a sincere heart. Now this phrase is sometimes translated with singleness of heart. It conveys the idea of being wholehearted. It conveys the idea of throwing your heart into it. You know, on the farm, my dad used to have this expression when we were mustering. He would say to us, look lively, lads. <laughs> and what he was saying is he was saying, don't just sit on the horse half asleep, but look lively, lads. Look like you are, you know, the man from Snowy River. Do you remember the man from Snowy River? That was my life as a teenager. Dun, 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 Riding along in rural Queensland. Look lively, lads. Throw your heart into it. This is what Paul is saying. And then he tells us why. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Look lively, lads. Throw your heart into it. And he tells us why. As you would Christ. You see, the reason that these people should obey their earthly masters with respect and should throw their heart into it is not because of their earthly masters, but because they have a heavenly master, Jesus, whom they are serving. Look down in verse 7. Paul says, Render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. In other words, Paul is saying, See your work as an act of worship. You see, you might not be able to change what you do, but you can change why you do it. You can say, I am going to work as an act of worship. You see, if you work at McDonald's, you can say, I am going to respect my line manager and I'm going to throw my heart into McDonald's and serve the best that I possibly can. This is an act of worship. This is the place where God has called me to worship Him and bring honor to him by my work. Now, obviously, if you work as an act of worship, it will change both the quality of your work and the quantity of your work. You know, you will want to produce excellent work for the king. You know, just imagine if Jesus came to McDonald's. You wouldn't want to throw together a sloppy Big Mac if you were feeding Jesus. You would want to get one that was exactly like the picture on the screen. I don't think it exists, but you would want to try and aim for that, wouldn't you? And it wouldn't just affect the quality of your work, it would also affect the quantity of your work. You would want to produce a fruitful work for Jesus. So how does the quality and quantity of your work stack up? Are you producing excellent work, throwing your heart into it for the glory of King Jesus? You know, I know that some of you are students here today, and I know that there's this saying out there, it goes like this, peas get degrees. Who knows that saying? You know that saying, peas get degrees, yeah? Well, imagine if you're a student studying for the glory of Jesus, you will want to do the very best that you can. If that's a pea, fantastic. But you'll want to do the best that you can for the glory of Jesus if you're working as an act of worship. And I think that you will find that there is a blessing in this for you. Because if you work as an act of worship, it will affect the quality and quantity of your, of your work and people will see it and, and you will be rewarded. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? The interesting thing about Joseph is everywhere that Joseph went, he rose to the surface. Whether it was in Potiphar's house, whether it was in prison, wherever he went, he worked as an act of worship with all his heart and he was raised up. The cream always raises to the top. 
So often you cannot change the what of your work, but you can change the why. You can see your work as an act of worship. And when you see your work as an act of worship, notice this, you will become a witness. Look down in verse 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then he says, not by the way of eye service, meaning not that just when people are watching you as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, when you do your work for the glory of Jesus, people will notice. And people will say, what's different about you? Why is it when everyone else is freaking out, you are composed and you're calm? Why is it when everyone else is cutting corners, you don't? Why is it when everyone else is engaging in office politics, you remain silent? You know, at City Reach, we believe that as a disciple of Jesus, you live out your new identity through community on mission. As a disciple of Jesus, you've been given a new identity. You are now a child of God. You live that out through community. You engage in the church family, and we build up one another. But all important is we live out our new identity through community on mission, on mission every day. Every day we are on mission, which includes our workplaces. You know, J.D. Greer, he has this very interesting thing. You know how we're trying to reach out to 10 cities in the 1040 window. You know that? Our Reach 10 vision, we want to plant 10 churches in Adelaide, 10 churches interstate, and reach out to 10 cities in the 1040 window. I once heard J.D. Greer say this. He said that there are 50,000 missionaries in the 1040 window. But he said there are 250,000 expats working in the 1040 window. The sleeping giant of the church is Christians who will embrace their workplace as their mission, who will take Jesus with them on their mission, who will go out of this place and work as an act of worship and that work will then become a witness for him. This is the sleeping giant of the church. You see, we buy into the idea that there is this sacred part of our lives and there is this secular part of our lives and the sacred part of my lives is Sunday, but the secular part of my life is all the other days of the week. That's not true. God exists and reigns over all of your life, right? And so your work is so significant to Him and it has value to Him. Who here drove to church on a road this morning? I'm glad that there are people who made those roads. Amen. Amen. <laughs> on Friday night, Tegan and I went out to Bang Bangkok Boulevard. Do you know that restaurant? It's one of my favorite restaurants. I'm glad that there are people who cook. You see, God has placed us in all these different places and our work has intrinsic value to Him. It brings glory to Him. And as we bring glory to Him by serving other people in our workplaces as an act of worship, it also leads to a witness to the greatness and glory of King Jesus. But here's, oh, it gets even better. It gets even better, my friends. 
Not only does your work become a witness, but you can work with the assurance that your work will receive an eternal reward. Look down in verse 8. Paul says, knowing that, what does he say? Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. See, some of us have bought into this idea that because I'm not a pastor or a missionary, I'm not going to receive any reward from the Lord. We've really bought into this sacred secular divide. So we think that Jesus is only going to reward our service here at church or our our stuff that we do here at church. But it says, whatever good you do, you'll receive reward from the Lord. And I'm so grateful for the people who work building up our roads. When you go to other countries and you see all the litter on the side of the road, I'm so grateful for the people who sweep our roads. What a good work that is. And when done for the glory of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, you can be assured that you will receive a reward from him, an eternal reward from him. He is pleased with your work that's offered to him, your daily work that's offered to him. He is pleased with that. It's offered in his name for his glory. So how do you become satisfied at work? Well, yes, humanly speaking, find a job that is in line with your passions and your strengths and your gifts and find a workplace that's healthy. But if you can't, you can still be satisfied and fulfilled if you approach your work as an attitude of worship. You surrender your rights to Christ and approach your work as an attitude of worship. Your work will become a witness and you can work with the assurance that you will receive an eternal reward if you're doing it for the glory of Christ. Now, I've got to ask you a question as I close. Why don't we work as an act of worship? Why don't we work as an act of worship? Well, the problem is, is this, is that we tend to worship work rather than working as an act of worship. We worship our work. We look to our work to provide us with security, with identity. And so we worship our work. And that's why we get tired. And that's why we get exhausted. Because we're placing too much weight on our work. And, And some of us do this thing where we have this pendulum swing. We go from placing too much weight on our work than to not placing enough weight on our work. We then just go, oh, well, I'll just see my work as just a job that I do. And the only way to be free of that is actually to find your rest in the finished work of Christ. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. The work is done. You don't have to get up tomorrow morning and find your identity in your work or find your security in your work, you have that in Jesus. You have that in Christ. And so you can go out into the workplace tomorrow morning and say, I don't need to go out to try and find something that, to, to find myself. I actually know who I am in Christ and I'm going out as an act of worship into the workplace. This is what you can do tomorrow morning. You see, have you ever wondered why we, we meet on the first day of the week. This is, is, is this not the first day of the week? Yeah, and why do we meet on the first day of the week, class? Why? Anyone? 
Why? Because it's celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. So we come together, we celebrate the rest that we have in him. We celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and we go out in the next six days as an act of worship. We enter our work out of rest. So question I have as we conclude is did you rest in the worship this morning? Will you rest on this day? Will you come back to Christ today? Find your soul's rest in him. Surrender again afresh to him. Bathe in his beautiful love for you. So that then tomorrow, you can get up and work as an act of worship. It will be a witness, and you can have the assurance of eternal life. Let me pray. Father, we just come before you right now. And this is a topic that hits all of us because we all, at various places, are entering, leaving the world of work. And we just come back to the Lord Jesus right now. And we want to experience that soul deep rest that comes from drinking in the gospel. And recognizing we don't work in order to gain our identity, but we have been justified by faith in Jesus alone. And Lord, I pray that you would just wake us up all, wake us all up, so that when we head out tomorrow, we would worship you and honor you and praise you. After the 9 a.m. service, there were some people who came forward for prayer, who wanted prayer because they do feel like they are in a job that doesn't suit their gifts and talents and abilities. If that's you and you want prayer right now, I want to pray for you. So stand up. If you want prayer for God to help you transition out of your current work situation into another situation, why don't you just stand and we're going to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for these precious people. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they transition and you would open a door so that they can transition into a work situation that suits their gifts and their talents and their abilities. But in the present, Lord, give them peace and give them the strength to cope with their situation. Lord, we pray. Amen. If you're retired here, I want you to stand up. And I want to pray for you. Let's pray for these precious people. Father, we pray for these precious retirees. We thank you for the years of work that they've put in in order to make our society what it is in various ways, Lord. And we pray, Father, for them right now that as they continue to work, not for pay, but for your glory, Father, that you would sustain them Give them your grace, Lord, as they live for you. Father, we pray. Amen. Thank you, retirees. The rest of you, I want you to stand up. I want to pray for you all now. Father, I pray 
that we would be a force for God in our community as we lift you high and as we work as an attitude, as an act of worship for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's surrender all to the Lord this morning and find his rest.